Okay. Well, good morning, family. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've had a week, definitely a week um, of a bit of attack, and so feeling really like something that God wants to do something today, I think, is where I'm, where I'm at in my heart. So, um, so we'll launch right in. And we, as we discussed last week, we all arrived at the start of our reading and understanding the Bible journey. And last week, we got off the bus and we spent some time in the car park doing a conditions and pack check to make sure that we had everything we needed to get the absolute most out of the journey ahead. As your tour guide, I stressed that because of its ancient nature, the journey we are about to take is hard. I also stressed the need to consequently have the right equipment with you as you walk, mainly a mindset of meditation and study and a tramping pack filled with the equipment that would help you along. And so I've got my pack back here today. Hopefully it's not going to fall apart. Um, and I am loading up my pack with all my books that we discussed last week. as are all of you. I've heard that some of you have actually been and bought yourself some tools, which is very encouraging and exciting. But now, everyone is ready to start. And after promising you all that we would actually start walking today, we have strapped on our packs of supplies, and I have brought you to the very start of the trek. But before we take our first steps, I just want to share one final point about the journey we are about to start. It is a very important point, and it is one that will help you immensely navigate all of the different things that you are about to see. Are you ready for it? The final point that I will make about this journey of reading and understanding the Bible is this. It is important to understand that while the Bible is presented to us, as one book. It actually has three different types of literary styles within it. In our modern culture, we are very used to the books we read being one kind of style. We might read, for example, a biography, and thus we expect that the entirety of that book will tell us all about the lives and the story of the person on the cover. We might also have books of poems or songs, and we therefore expect to find a collection of poems and songs. Or we might even have, and this is really showing how much of a nerd I am, books like this, which are a collection of famous speeches and each of the books that we read today tend to resume one literary style all the way through. And that is what we have come to expect. You wouldn't, for example, be reading about William and Catherine Booth and their amazing ministry of finding each other and serving the poor, and then find screeds and screeds of poems right in the middle of that book. However, as your tour guide, I need to tell you that that is not the case for this book. 
The Bible has three literary styles, as I said, within it. And regularly, as we walk our journey, we are going to be switching between them. Think of each of these styles as their own type of terrain. And thus, as we are walking through our journey of reading and understanding the Bible, it is important to know what kind of terrain we are walking so that we can walk and observe accordingly, getting out everything that we possibly can. One minute, we will be walking through an epic biography, but then suddenly, we will find chapters and chapters of poetry before picking up the story again. So today, as we start walking, we are going to learn more about the three types of literary, literary styles and the terrain as we encounter each one. So with that knowledge in our pockets, let us begin. And take our first steps of the journey by heading to Genesis 1. And if you have brought your Bibles with you, I encourage you to pull it out. It is an absolute luxury that we live in a society where we are allowed to have these and have them in our hands and walk with them freely. So I encourage you to be bringing the word with you to church. But Genesis 1, as we start and make our first steps on the journey and put on our hat of meditation and study and start walking, it reads, The Creation of the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. First reference to the Holy Spirit. How cool is that? And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above it. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. so. And God made the great two lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars, and God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. 
to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the darkness from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged board according to its bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. What's coming up on the sixth day, folks? And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and every beast on the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. And this founding and beautiful scripture is an example of the first type of terrain that we will continually encounter on our journey of reading and understanding the Bible. And that is the biblical literary style known as narrative. And narrative literature is written by its authors to tell us stories and to help us imagine and journey through key historical events that the Bible captures. As we journey through the narrative of Genesis 1, for example, we can imagine the land rising from the seas. We learn about God bringing order to chaos and creating spaces for his creation to inhabit. We learn that these spaces and the creatures that inhabit them are good to him and that they are beautiful and pure and perfect. And we see rivers and trees and animals and galaxies that are unlike what we see today. We learn that we are made in his image and can begin to fathom what that means. And as we read the journey through the Eden narrative, we catch a sense of the splendor and the goodness of God's original creation as the author intends. But after some time marveling at the beauty of the scenery, 
we find ourselves in, as we walk through the narrative of Genesis 1-1, we find ourselves stopping dead in our tracks and falling completely silent as I yell to you all from the front that there is a serpent on our path. We all pause and wait, placed on immediate edge knowing what such creatures are capable of and feeling weird about the fact that up until now, our journey and the scenery that we have been seeing is completely perfect and utterly beautiful. The existence of serpents on our journey and the danger that they bring then starts to decay the total sense of peace and splendor that we have experienced up until this point. And that, my family, is the point. This moment in our journey where we encounter the snake is a moment that changes the trajectory of our journey completely and one that you simply will not forget. By reading the narrative, we watch together as the serpent slivers its way towards the humans and begins a conversation. And in Genesis 3, it narrates how the serpent convinces the woman to eat from the tree whose fruit has been forbidden by God. And as she does so, darkness enters the garden. And as I shared in my message at Christmas time, this passage also contains God saying that he will incur pain in the heel, but stamp on the head of the serpent, which is him alluding to the fact that he had a plan to restore us right back then to our original created state of being in partnership with him. He had a plan to offer us life again after we brought death on ourselves by choosing to disobey and go our, our own way. And it is here in Genesis 3, just a few hundred meters into our tramping journey of reading and understanding the Bible, that the summit we are working towards as we read the Bible becomes clear. From this point onwards, we are leaving the flat, beautiful garden that we have been in and beginning a gradual climb up a reading mountain to Calvary, where we will all sit at the foot of the cross and marvel at the fulfillment of God's plan to rescue humanity that he talks about in Genesis 3. Every tramping track has a destination, doesn't it? A summit point that you want to arrive at. Every novel or story that we read in our modern culture has a climatic moment that we are working towards. The couple gets together, or the mystery is solved, or justice is gained. The cross is our Bible reading summit. And every step we take from now through the rest of the Old Testament takes us closer to it. The podcast I listen to called The Bible Project describes our journey as one unified story or journey that leads us to Jesus. And when I learnt and grasped the simple fact that Old Testament lit literature was, was building and building and building up to this climatic moment, it helped me in my reading immensely. So from this point, as we leave the garden, the flat space, and start our uphill climb towards that summit as we journey through the rest of the Old Testament, it is important that no matter what terrain we are on, we are always asking ourselves two questions. The first is, 
Where are we in the story of the Israelites, the family whose history we walk through for the rest of the Old Testament? And the second is how is that moment in history and the part of the journey that we are in pointing us closer to the summit that is Jesus? So we come out of our Genesis and Exodus narratives I don't have time to go into all of those today, but we come out of Genesis and Exodus narratives, and we can already see how the Israelite nation is taking us on an uphill journey to the cross. We meet Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation. We keep walking and encounter his grandson Jacob, who has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel, who we learn a lot about in coming books. We keep walking and discover that famine drives them into the land of Egypt where they become slaves. We journey with Moses as he becomes God's appointed leader to save his people from their bondage. And our journey even allows us to sit in on the first Passover, an event whose symbolism we will grasp more and more as we keep walking. But after spending some good time in these books that are mostly of the narrative literary style, the end of Exodus brings us to a new type of terrain and another type of book that we will find a lot of in our uphill journey to the summit and even after it. And that is the type of literary style known as prose discourse. While narratives essentially tell us stories and help us imagine key historical events, prose discourse records just that, discourse. To us as the reader, reader, they appear as speeches and conversations and commands, letters and prophecies. And as we lead Exodus, we arrive at a book that is the epitome of prose discourse. And that is the book of Leviticus. Now, if you have ever tried to read Leviticus, you would likely agree with me that it is a hard read. Who has tried to read it? Would we all agree it's a bit weird? Yeah. To me, filled with weird things and that just don't really seem to make a heck of a lot of sense. My Bible commentary describes it as the most thoroughly legalistic of all of the books of the Old Testament. And on our tramping journey, it genuinely looks like we are facing a sandy, uphill, sparse terrain with no shade and a blazing sun as we start to walk and journey through this book and try to make sense of it. But armed with the knowledge that we are on an ancient track, with a meditative and study mindset, and with a pack of suitable supplies, we will find this book has actually incredible value in the journey and climb to the cross. So let's start with our first question and ask ourselves, what is the wider context of the book of Leviticus. I open my pack of supplies, and with the knowledge of my fellow brothers and sisters who are way smarter than I am, their knowledge reveals a a few key bits of information. At Leviticus, the Israelites have been freed from slavery in Egypt, have crossed through the Red Sea, and are now camped near Mount Sinai. We know this. We've journeyed through it. They have just built the tabernacle, and God's presence has filled it so that God can dwell with his people in this place. 
There's a problem, though, in that because God is holy and perfect, he can't be in the same presence as someone who is not holy and perfect, going back to our Eden narrative. The prose discourse of Leviticus, then, outlines a series of rituals, purity laws, and instructions regarding how the Israelites can keep themselves clean, pure, and able to enter God's holy presence. It is important to note that these rituals and laws form the essential terms of God's new covenant with the Israelites. Following these laws didn't save them, but rather obedience to them represented a loyalty to God and his ways. They represent a kind of invitation to trust God's wisdom and enter his presence. Again, going back to the Edom narrative. Of final significance is the fact that these laws and rituals were also set the Israelites to were also to set the Israelites apart from the other nations who were involved in all kinds of things, such as witchcraft and sorcery and cult practices. A quote from my commentary says, Leviticus consists almost entirely of laws, don't we know it, uttered by God himself. Consequently, these laws have a high and heavenly character which sets them apart from laws of man's devising. It is important to keep in mind that the consistent emphasis throughout the Bible, and nowhere more evident than Leviticus, is on difference. The religion of Israel is unique and distinctive. They separate Israel from the nations, and they set her apart for service of God, who has made his people his own by delivering them from Egyptian bondage. So armed with all of that context we can begin to march up this sandy stretch of discourse knowing exactly what it is that we are reading. And when we arrive at Leviticus 19.19, 19, for example, it reads, You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two different kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two different kinds of material. Now, while this may seem baffling to us in our modern-day lives, thousands of years later, especially if we read it in isolation from the others around it, we can now identify this passage as part of a section of laws regarding what the Israelites had to do to keep themselves pure and clean and able to be in God's holy presence. And reading of the commentary also highlights that these laws draw specific attention to the fact that other nations were breeding their cattle with different breeds and sowing different kinds of seed and wearing garments of two different kinds of material as a fertility cult practice, as a way to influence their gods and try and bring on prosperity to themselves. These practices were therefore contrary to a lifestyle with God at the forefront, and thus God speaks to them directly in this discourse by saying to his people not to do it. Not the kind of thing you'd be able to deduce without wide support in a bit of study. So this discourse we are reading actually starts to make a bit of sense. But what is also really important and cool about the book of Leviticus is that this book, the most thoroughly legalistic of them all, actually brings us closer to the summit. And by reading and studying it, we can see Jesus in the distance you see, as well as having laws to follow to keep themselves pure and able to dwell in God's presence, 
Rituals were established to provide a cleansing for sins when they did fall short of God's glory. And this ritual, as some of us will know, for cleansing was in the form of animal sacrifices. Again, our understanding of the Bible is ancient literature, written thousands of years ago, with our study mindset, leads us to remember that while animal sacrifices to us may seem weird, to them, they were the norm of the day. And in the middle of Leviticus, in this middle of a book thoroughly legalistic, in chapter 16, we find an annual ritual or feast called the Day of Atonement, which describes how essentially once a year, an acknowledgement that there was no way all the Israelites could offer all the animal sacrifices for all of their sins all the time, a priest would offer a sacrifice for all. And the passage in Leviticus 16 describes the exact way that the priest was to enter the tabernacle and kill a goat, shed the blood, and release another goat into the wilderness. Ultimately, we read and walk to understand that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. And here is where the view of the summit from Leviticus becomes clear. My commentary says, to understand Calvary and to see it in its tragic glory, we must review it with the light of the sacred story centered upon it. We must turn to Leviticus and read of the great day of atonement and of the explanation which is given of it there. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. And thus we shall see the great drama of redemption unfolding before our eyes in Leviticus. Most importantly, the law... and. This is another quote. Most importantly, the laws that required a substitutionary sacrifice set a precedent for the work of Christ's substitutionary atonement. Christ's death provides a fulfillment of the law's demand and is the basis for our acceptance with God. The Old Testament serves as a vivid background for that great event in history. And here it is, the importance of our summit and the meaning of that cross we are working to, walking towards as we journey through Leviticus becomes clear. We look back at our narrative in Genesis 3 and remember that there is a plan to save humanity and restore us to our original state that we walked through right at the beginning. We wonder where we are in that journey in terms of God's presence, his chosen people, how to fulfill a series of laws to keep themselves clean and pure. But then we continually look at the summit. We see in the distance where a pure human would pour out his blood as the ultimate and ongoing sacrifice for our sins. So in Leviticus, we learn that Jesus will give a new law which will not abolish the old, but fulfill what we are reading about and make it redundant. Thankfully, we can wear garments with two kinds of fabric. So, you see, even the book of Leviticus, an example of Prost's discourse, is filled with ancient laws, points to the desperate need for Jesus. But for the Israelites and both for the Israelites and for us as we suffer from the same sinful tendencies at this point, we can truly lift our head and see Jesus and gaze at the beauty of the summit before us. And we keep moving and we walk our way through the further discourse books of Numbers and Deuteronomy. Who's tried to read those? We keep climbing uphill as we walk through the narratives of Joshua and Judges and Ruth. 
the Samuels and the Chronicles, which see us journey through a series of kings who rule over the Israelite nation and who point us closer to Jesus, our ultimate king. And after some more time in prose discourse in the prophets of Ezra and Nehemiah and the narrative of Esther and Job, we arrive at one of the most beloved books of the Old Testament. Would anyone like to guess what it is? The Psalms. And that is the book of Psalms. And it is where we are going to learn about the final type of terrain that we are going to encounter on our journey of reading and understanding the Bible and on our ultimate trip to the summit. And that is the literary style of biblical poetry. Now, it is important that I note that if you've read and journeyed right from Genesis to the Psalms, you already will have read some biblical poetry. I'm just choosing as the tour guide to stop us here to introduce you to this type of um, style because Psalms is the largest collection of poetry that we will find in the Bible. Now, one of, my, one of the Bible Project podcasts talks about how approximately 30% of the whole Bible is biblical poetry. And instead of telling us pieces of the redemption story like a narrative-style book or disclosing to us the words of others in the forms of laws, speeches, letters, and prophecies like discourse, biblical poetry exists to connect us with the emotions and feelings of its authors, which is why we love the psalm so much. When we arrive at a poetry along our journey, it is like an invitation to deeply and emotionally connect with those who have carved out the journey before us. It is an invitation to pause and to sit and to reflect on all that we have seen in our journey so far. We share in their experiences, their prayers, their celebrations, their trials on their journey, and we find solace in how their situations and feelings mirror our own today. So using our mindset and our pack of resources, let's return to our first question as we sit and enjoy our lunch and ask ourselves, what is the wider context of the collection of poetry that is the Book of Psalms? And my pack of resources reveals the following bits of information. Often Christians can misinterpret the Psalms and read them like they are God's word to us. But this is not the case. The Psalms are words spoken to God or about God in the forms of poetry and songs. And according to the podcast, the Israelites composed lots of poetry throughout their history. Some were poems that were sung by choirs, while others were simply things that were prayed by families at home. And over the centuries, the most important and widely read poems were compiled together to be read or sung on special occasions. Each poem was masterfully written, and there are different kinds of psalms and different kinds of patterns that they all follow, won't go into that today either, but ultimately, multiple authors contributed to the collection. And importantly, each psalm is placed where it is for a reason. What I literally just discovered while preparing for this sermon is that the psalm collection is actually split into five sections. The first two sections are psalms written by David, which talk about his rule and reign so Tori's psalm, which I didn't even know she was reading that today, is from David, from the first two books. 
The third section includes psalms which describe the exile. And the final two sections rekindle the hope for the Messiah, a new temple in God's kingdom. Incredibly then, by being strategically positioned as they are, the psalms then give an overview of the entire biblical story and again, our journey to redemption. The psalms then point us to the summit and move us closer to Jesus. And let's quickly see this in action by reading the first two psalms, one and two. So Psalm 1 reads, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And if we read that carefully, not only will we pick up the need to meditate on the word in all physical positions at all times, like we discussed last week, but we might also think back to the very, very beginning of our journey and how this description of a tree planted by water, obeying God's commands, describes our original design and occupation in Eden. Psalm 2 reads, Why do nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, and then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And Psalm 2 then carries on. And just like Eden describes how the rulers of the earth set themselves apart from God, go on their own way, and make their own decisions. Yet here again in verse 4, we are reminded that God has a plan. As for me, he says, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. And a quote from my commentary says, Psalm 2 is rightly regarded as a messianic psalm in that it points to Jesus. The poem represents the whole world organized against the Lord in deliberate opposition to his rule and points the contrast between the agitation and futility of rebellious peoples and the equanimity and the immutable purposes of God. So here, in a collection of poetry, we are yet again reminded of the summit we are journeying towards and its meaning for us. We can look up from the track and gaze at the beauty of where we are heading and what it means for us. We are closer than we were when we were back in Leviticus, and even closer than we were back in Genesis 3. And by adding psalms to our packs, we are now carrying with us songs and prayers that are meant to become our own as we continue to walk ever closer, if the band want to come up. So, let's recap, shall we? 
Today, we officially started walking the reading and understanding the Bible journey, carrying with us the knowledge that this track is hard, that we need a meditative and study mindset and the right tools and gear to help us through. We have discovered, as we have started, that on this track, there are three different types of terrain that we are going to encounter along the way. These different types of terrain essentially represent the different types of style in the Bible. Narrative, which tells us stories, like in Genesis. Prose discourse, like Leviticus, which, tell, like Leviticus, which tells us letters and laws and speeches, and prophecy. And poetry, like the Psalms, which through poems and prayers and songs ultimately invite us to share in the emotions of the writers. Ultimately, though, and of incredible importance is that as we walk through these different types of terrain, we find our eyes continually fixed on the summit. We now know that after traveling through Genesis 3, the Old Testament journey essentially reveals to us incrementally God's plan to save and restore us, and that we are walking towards that summit where Jesus fulfills that plan that we originally journeyed through. As we journey, we need to be continually asking ourselves what the context is, where we are, and how it points to that summit moment. And to finish today, I thought I would read to you from Psalm 150, the bookend of the Psalm 1, as we now know, and the end of the Psalm's overview of the biblical stories. And it says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sounds. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. And praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals and with loud clashing cymbals. And let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.